I have one more passage of scripture I'd like to read to you. It's from Matthew's account of the birth of our Lord. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, through the end of the chapter. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Spend some moments considering this passage, but before we do, let's ask the Lord for help. Father, You gave your son to be revealed to us that we might know him, follow him, worship him, trust him. We pray, Father, as we spend these moments considering your words, that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to receive the true Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Christmas uh, is such a odd time of the year. Um, I don't know what kind of emotions it evokes in you. Um, if I took a poll to see how you're feeling right now, I would guess that it'd just be all over the map for what people experience at Christmas time. I read an article that was titled uh, something along the lines of "Why I Hate Christmas." I don't know if you share those sentiments or not, but certainly you can understand that Christmas evokes a lot of feelings and a lot of activity. And yet we're here at church on Christmas Eve, and so we're not talking about Santa Claus. We're not talking about gifts under the tree. You know what we're here to talk about, at least if you have any sense of what happens in churches. Uh, We're here to talk about Jesus. So as we ask the question, which we really have to do, is what is Christmas all about? You probably know the answer. And yet, our actions sometimes betray what we know to be the answer, or perhaps the answer doesn't even matter to you. You know that church people believe it's about Jesus, but for you personally, it's not that important. You can write down the answers. Um, Where are things in your heart? Where do you stand right now in regard to what Christmas is all about? We go about all the activities of Christmas. It's so busy. Such a chaotic time. I was at the stores today, and it was horrible. There's so many people shopping, spending money, and I was so glad when I was done. It doesn't necessarily provoke the spirit of Christmas in you to be out among uh, the stores 
even all of the lights and the Christmas trees and the, the giving and the getting and all of this is so overwhelming and the getting together and the food. And so while we know what the right answers are, what is Christmas all about? Well, I want to give to you three answers to that question. What is Christmas all about? Christmas is not a holiday that God commands us to celebrate. As you look through the Bible, there's actually no command for us to have gatherings and festivities at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, nor does it forbid it. And so it's okay to do it, and I hope you have a Merry Christmas and lots of joy, full of thanksgiving to God. But it's not commanded. What is commanded for us to do is to remember something about the life of Christ, or really all of it, but in particular, the death of Christ. That's what we're called to remember. So what is Christmas all about? Well, it's not all about the festivities, the presents, the trees. Christmas, as I'm sure you could answer, is all about Jesus. Let me read to you. Matthew 1, verse 21 again, which I think encapsulates at least what the Bible would portray to us about the point of Christmas. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the name above every name. He is the high and exalted one. He's the son of God. He is the one who is conceived of in the virgin's womb, born, lived a perfect life, died an atoning death. And we could say as much as we possibly could about Jesus. The end of the Gospel of John says that if he could go on writing about the life of Jesus, he's supposed that not all of the books in the world can contain everything there is to be said about Jesus. But I want to just give you a few, maybe... Um, Highlights of what Matthew would suggest to us about Jesus. Not suggest, but declare to us about who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who fulfills Scripture. He's the one who has come in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. The Old Testament was written hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene. Isaiah chapter 7, book that was written about 700 years before Jesus was born, says, it says in Matthew 1.23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. It's a quote from a book that was written 700 years before Jesus was born. And he fulfilled that scripture and many others. You can search the Old Testament and see how it tells of the coming of Christ and how he fulfills that perfectly. In fact, the whole of the Old Testament, all 39 books, really are preparing us for the coming of Jesus of Nazareth. From Genesis chapter 1 until the end of the Old Testament, it's preparing us for the coming of this one person, Jesus Christ. Genesis chapter 3 tells us that there was going to be one that God would send who is going to crush the head of Satan. Jesus is the one who did that at the cross. It really means that the whole of history is leading up to the fulfillment that we find in Jesus of Nazareth. History is not this random sequence of events going who knows where. History is God's 
writing in human time about what he wants to reveal about himself and salvation for his people. It's following a path that is inevitably leading to the culmination that he desires to reveal in his son. So Jesus is the fulfillment of 39 books of scripture. Jesus, as a matter of fact, says, just a few chapters later in Matthew, they didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. That's referring to the whole Old Testament. He came to fulfill them. That's a massive statement for an individual to make, to say that he is the one who is going to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. He's the one who did it. To the T, he fulfilled that which was written long before he came. But it's not just a generic fulfillment. It's not just like this parlor trick where he came to fulfill prophecies and said, See, I told you. There's something better about what he came to do because he is the long-expected king. So not only did he come to fulfill Scripture, he came to fulfill it in a specific way in that he is the long-expected king. It says again in Matthew 21 that he would come to save his people from their sins. He's a king, and he has a people. He came of the line of David. Matthew chapter 1 makes that clear. Uh, you know this, David. David and Goliath, um, that young boy who went down to the brook and took up five smooth stones and whipped around his sling and hurled a stone into the, the giant's head, and the giant fell down dead. And then the part that they leave out of the kids' stories, David runs up and hacks off the head of Goliath. He did this, and then he became the greatest king of Israel, full of exceptional glory and power, and capabilities. And God said to Samuel that he was going to be king on the throne and God would build him a house, not a physical house, but a lineage, descendants. And God said that one of those descendants would sit on the throne of David forever. Speaking of massive statements, how do you have a descendant of David sit on the throne forever. There's this inhibition that humans have towards doing things forever, and that inhibition is death. It gets in the way. But Jesus of Nazareth lived such a, an amazingly unique kingly life that he alone could fulfill that prophecy. The long-expected king who came was a unique king. He was unlike any other kings that this world had ever seen. He was born humbly in a manger to parents of really no significance. He went on to live a life for 30 years that was relatively unknown. But when he entered into his ministry, he lived a life that was so distinct, so unique, doing things that no other king had ever done. He came healing the sick, making the blind people see, deaf people hear. He even raised the dead. He taught with such authority that when people heard his teaching, they were stopped in their tracks and said, nobody's ever spoken like this man. You can read his words, Matthew 5 through 7. I would commend to you, They're the, it's the Sermon on the Mount. It is the most amazing uh, sermon that has ever been preached. And you read those words and you come to the conclusion, if you read them carefully, there's no one else 
who's ever spoken like this man because he lifted up such an amazing ethic of devotedness to God, of love for others, that we recognize its truth, and yet we also recognize our inability to attain to it. Jesus as king, healed, taught. But eventually people got sick of him. His teaching was so profound and so devoted to God, people didn't want to hear it anymore. And so because he was not a king of this world, and a king unlike any other king, and didn't raise up an army to get rid of the pesky Romans, the people took him, made a mockery of him, crowned him with a crown of thorns, beat him with a scourging whip that shredded his back to bits, and then to lift him up on his throne, put him on a Roman cross and pinned him to it. He died there, put in a tomb, and then three days later, he rose to life. When he resurrected to life again, he defeated death so that he would never die again, thereby being the king who can sit on David's throne forever because death has no hold on him. This is the king, Jesus, the long-expected king. He's the one who fulfills scripture. He's the long-expected king. And he's also God with us. That was the name that he was to be given according to Isaiah 7. Not his name that he would go by in day-to-day speech, but the name which identifies who and what he is. He is Emmanuel, God with us. I don't know where you stand or sit this evening in relationship to God. Some of you may dismiss his existence. Some of you may wonder where he is. May I offer to you Jesus of Nazareth, who is God with us. If you're looking for God, look to Jesus, and you will find him there. Jesus is not only perfect man, he is also perfect God. He's the great mystery of the God-man. The Son of God who dwelt in heaven forever, who came down as a baby, he took on flesh, is truly God and truly man. He came to show us what God is like. If you're wondering, where is God? What is he like? Look to Jesus. Look to the Jesus of Scripture and you'll find him to be merciful, good, scary at times with what he tells you, but always faithful, perfect, and pure. He is God with us. So Christmas, of course, is about Jesus. It has to be about Jesus. Christmas is also about people. Christmas is about people. It says in our text, Matthew one twenty one, that he will save his people. He's a king, so he has a people that belong to him. The Bible doesn't undervalue humanity, human beings. In fact, it has a rather high view of humans because it says in Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter of the Bible, that God made man in his own image. We understand intuitively there's value to our life. 
That's why you feed yourself every day, why you clothe yourself, why you clean yourself, why you take care of yourself, because you know that your life has some value. You know that other people's lives have value too. That's why you sometimes treat them with respect. And when we hear about some stories of misery, if we have blood flowing through our veins, we might be compelled to compassion. I heard a story recently, a true story, from a gentleman who lives in another country. There's a woman that he knew who had had a stroke. It's an older lady, and she was brought to the hospital, and the hospital was so um, overwhelmed that the doctors and nurses put her in a room and closed the door and left her to die. They didn't feed her. They didn't give her anything to drink. They didn't change her. So there she sat in her own filth, wasting away from dehydration and starvation. Her daughter heard about this, basically went and abducted her mom and nursed her back to some semblance of health, but she ultimately did pass away. But you hear something like that, and you think, that should not happen. That life is valuable. That woman, even if she is old, even if she's been afflicted, is valuable. There's something important about her. What's important about her is that she is made in the image of God. That's what sets us all apart from everything else in this world. There's a kid's book that I read to my children, and it has a a cartoon drawing in it, and it has a man who's speaking to a monkey. And the man says to the monkey, I make music, I help send people to space, build buildings, take care of other people, uh, love art, make delicious food. What do you do? And the monkey has a thought bubble coming up from his head and it has a drawing of a banana in it. (laughs) We understand that there's something distinct about human beings from every other creature that's out there. And the distinction, again, is that we've been created in the image of God. And so human beings are capable of these great feats of engineering and mercy and hospitals and hospitality and great inventions and great accomplishments. And so that's kind of the good side of what we see. And yet the reality of being made in the image of God makes the truth about our badness all the worse. Because not only are we capable of great accomplishments, we are also capable of horrific atrocities. On a global scale, we look around and see the horrific things that happen in our world. You read the headlines, and you see how horrible it is, the things that we do to one another. And so, Christmas is about... Jesus, it's about people. Thirdly, it's about sin. Christmas is about sin. Might be an odd thing to say. Christmas is about the holly jolly music, the lights sparkling, the serenity of a peaceful Christmas morning. Sin is dark, ugly, atrocious, smells bad. 
Sin is ugly. And yet Christmas is about sin. That's exactly what Matthew one twenty one says. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Transgressions. Iniquity. Sin is defined in the Bible as simply this. Sin is lawlessness. There is a God in heaven who has made each one of us, and he's given us a conscience, and he's written his law on our hearts. And we intuitively know what is right and what is wrong. And so it's easy to look at the outside and see all that's wrong in our world, all the wrong that other people do, but we have to turn the mirror and look at ourselves for a moment and realize that as the mirror is turned, our own hearts are full with the capacity for evil, just like we see in the world. Things exist in each one of our hearts like greed, envy, jealousy, hatred, And Jesus sets the standard at the heart level where he says, if you look with lust, you are guilty of adultery. He says that if you are angry at your brother and say, you fool, you're liable to the fire of judgment. Sin is committed against a law-giving God. And we have broken his law. Maybe you don't think your heart is all that bad. Maybe I can convince you mine is. Share an embarrassing story for a moment. Fifth grade, I um, realized just how bad my heart could be. There was a new kid in school, and you all know that being the new kid is one of the worst experiences that you can endure. And he came from a family uh, that was on hard times. I don't know all the details, but he probably hadn't bathed for weeks, if not months. He was covered in filth, smelled bad, and that is not a good situation for fifth graders. And so all of the kids, of course, in school are making fun of him. And there I stand, tempted to join in. And the word that they used to describe him, the name that they applied to him, was simply dirt. Hey, dirt. And I decided I would join in. Now, you may think, of course, fifth grade, you know, that's what you do. But as I've grown up, and I've realized how my heart was reflected in that moment, I know the pride, the selfishness, the total absence of love that existed in those moments. And my heart didn't get better as I got older. You turn the mirror on yourself... And you let God's word evaluate you for a moment. The standard that Jesus says sets is to love your neighbor as yourself. And he doesn't accept anything less. 
And you will quickly, if you are willing to be honest, you will quickly realize that you have an abundance of sin that comes from the very core of who you are that you can never atone for. You can't be good enough. You can start a hospital in Afghanistan and that's not good enough to take care of all of the wickedness that you have done. And so you're left in this dilemma where you have to face a God who has set a righteous standard, one that is good, and you have broken it. This is what Christmas is all about. You call his name Jesus, which means the Lord saves. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. The good news of Christmas is that God, in all of his wisdom, might, mercy, and power, sent his son, Jesus, to take on human flesh so that he could stand in the place of humans when he died on the cross to face the penalty for your sin, which is death and separation from God. So that when Jesus went to the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he endured the punishment for sin that is rightly due to us. And in doing so, he purchases salvation for his people. Christmas is about Jesus. Christmas is about people. And Christmas is about Jesus coming to save his people from their sin. What are you going to do when you stand before the holy God? There's something being offered to you right now. Really, right now. Jesus died on the cross for those who trust him and repent of their sin. If you at all are feeling the conviction of your sin before a holy God, God is calling you to repent of your sin. That's simply to confess it to him and to resolve to turn from it and to trust that Jesus gave his life for you at the cross. And then he beckons you to follow him. Make him your Lord, the one whom you will follow. It's offered to you tonight. That's what Christmas is all about. To call people to receive forgiveness of their sins through the baby who was born in that manger. Let's pray. Father, you've offered us an amazing gift, the total forgiveness of our sins. Lord, if you were to count our iniquities, who could stand before you? But you've offered the Lord Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, to stand in our place. Thank you. We couldn't have come up with this plan. We couldn't purchase it. We couldn't bribe you to do it. Out of love, you did it for us. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.